From Jordan-Hare Stadium to Auburn Arena. From the Plains to the recruiting trail and all points in between. If it's Auburn, we've got it covered. Did I say War Eagle or War Eagle? That's it? War Eagle. This is the Auburn Undercover Podcast with Brandon Marcello. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Auburn Undercover Podcast. I'm Brandon Marcello. I am coming to you live via tape delay in the parking lot where I'm sitting in my car outside the athletics complex here at Auburn. I can see I can see Auburn head coach Gus Malzahn's office window from here. I can't see in it. I have a bad angle. But I'm not spying. I'm just recording a podcast in my car because I don't want to wake up my kid tonight. My kid's got an ear infection. Um, he needs to sleep as much as he can. My wife needs to sleep as much as she can. So I'm, I'm going to record this in the car. So anyway, Auburn beat Tulane 24-6. You all know that. It doesn't seem like anybody's really happy right now, though, particularly with the offense. I think it all goes with the offense right now with Auburn. Um, and, and there's some good reasons, some valid points behind all that, and we're going to discuss that. Um, a lot of this podcast is going to be devoted to your questions because I know a lot of you have questions, one about the offense and some other things with the team, um, and then just some off-topic stuff as well. But to get to the heart of the matter, I wanted to be able to just reach out to you guys, have you tweet me your questions, and I'll answer them here on the podcast today. So that's what this podcast is going to be all about, uh, at least this edition, before we do a roundtable episode later this week when Auburn gets closer to playing Kent State. But once again, for the second straight week, um, here to start the season, Auburn just having issues running the football. They had 20 yards rushing in the first half against Tulane. That's unacceptable. And I, and I know, you know, it's, what's strange is you think like an Auburn coach, Gus Malzahn or someone would say that, but they didn't say that. They just said, hey, Tulane's pretty good, you know. But it's a non-Power 5 team. Sometimes you've just got to sack up a little bit and say, hey, we got to do better. We're Auburn. Um, I'm not hearing that right now. Now, behind closed doors and behind closed eyes, when these coaches are dreaming, they're probably thinking that. They're thinking this is unacceptable. The good news is, is Auburn in the last two weeks and the first two games against Oregon and Tulane, the running game improved uh, in the second half, particularly in the third quarters, late in the third quarters of those games. Um but can they start games like that? Um, that's the big issue for me in watching this team. I think that this team will improve offensively, particularly in the passing game. I thought you saw some improvements in the passing game with Bo Nix, the true freshman, uh, against Tulane. There were some different route concepts. Um, I really liked what they were trying to set up at times. It looks like Gus Malzahn's tinkering with some stuff. Um and I think what you're seeing is you're obviously seeing the growth of Bo Nix, but you're also seeing the growth of this offense. The issue is the running game. And if you can't get the running game going against Tulane and you have been bragging and bragging about five starters returning and them all being seniors along the offensive line, and yet here you are entering week three with questions about whether you can run the football effectively, that's an issue. 
Now, when you look at the numbers, like the final box score, Auburn had, what, 172 yards rushing against Tulane? That's pretty good. That's that's fine. You want to hit about 200 yards rushing every game. But Auburn hasn't played an SEC game yet. They haven't played an SEC defense. Now, let's not take anything away from Tulane or Oregon. They both have good defenses, but they're good. They're not great. They're not going to be like the great defenses Auburn's going to face with LSU um, or Georgia or Alabama. Um, and I know some of you are probably sitting there thinking, well, LSU just allowed a lot of points at Texas. Well, what I'm talking about is specifically defensive lines and going against Auburn's offensive line. Now, why was Auburn successful in the second half against Oregon and also uh, Tulane? Well, they changed things up a little bit, particularly in the Tulane game. You saw, I think there was three buck sweep calls in the Wildcat. All worked very well. One was called back with a holding call. One was a 24-yard run. One was a 14-yard run for a touchdown by Jartavius Whitlow. They got some movement up front in doing so. They pulled the guards, all both guards, to the right. They tacked the edge. They confused Tulane a little bit by running some different scheme there. Blocking scheme, I should say. Um, my issue with that would be is... Why wait till halftime to make that adjustment? Um, and I'm sure fans are wondering that too. Why did that not happen after the first two or three drives offensively when you're averaging 1.5 yards per carry like they did in the first half with only 20 yards and you're forcing your quarterback, Bo Nix, to throw the ball 29 times in the first half? And I haven't had the time to go and look in the record books, but I'm sure throwing 29 passes in one half is probably a record for a Gus Malzahn coach team here at Auburn. Um, if not, it's close. I mean, nearly 30 times in one half when Auburn wasn't, you know, trailing by 14 or 21 points. That's um, kind of incredible to me. So Auburn, a lot to work on. We didn't really get a lot of great answers, um, like insightful answers about the problems when we talked to Gus Malzahn Sunday. Uh, but, you know, I did get to study the numbers a little bit. And we also got some updates on Seth Williams, uh, the receiver for Auburn. I, he's not going to play this week. There's no way he plays this week against Kent State for Auburn. The goal for Auburn after he injured his shoulder on that 40-yard catch against Tulane is to get him back for Tulane. Or, excuse me, <laughs> to get him back for Texas A&M September 21st. Auburn's SEC opener on the road. Um, I've, I've been told by a source that it's not a serious, serious injury. It's not, they don't believe he broke his collarbone or anything like that, which is great news, but Gus Malzahn wasn't really direct with it. He said he'd be more direct later this week. We'll see. He has said that before. And then later in the week, he says he doesn't really have an update. So, um, but based off what I'm being told there, there's the, the, the date they're circling on the calendar is obviously Texas, uh, A&M and, and for a lot of players for that matter. Uh, that are banged up or trying to be uh, put up back to full speed. Will Hastings, who took that vicious helmet-to-helmet hit, seems to be okay as well. He did not suffer a concussion, uh, just had a small abrasion actually on his upper left cheek after the game. He spoke to the media afterwards, so he was doing fine. So Auburn moving forward, they've, they've got to figure some things out offensively. The defense, I would say, also has to figure some things out, particularly – why are they struggling so much when they open games on these first drives? Um, and one of the Auburn's players Saturday night just straight up said, hey, 
you know, an offensive coordinator's 10 best plays are always the first 10 plays because they're scripted, and they're usually plays that you haven't seen on tape before to try and catch you off guard. The problem is Auburn, in a sense, in a way, has got to be ready for that and because it's good, they, they should know that, hey, these are going to be different plays. Let's run some base stuff. Let's keep everything in front of us. And that, that hasn't happened against Oregon and hasn't happened against Tulane. Of course, that's on Kevin Steele to get things going. But having said that, uh, Kevin Steele's been probably the best coach on the staff with in-game adjustments. They've been fantastic in these first two games and limiting Oregon and both Tulane um, scoring, but also uh, moving the football uh, successfully. Uh, Tulane kicked that field goal to open the open the game. They got one more field goal in the game. They had 88 yards on those two drives, or two scoring drives to get two field goals. And then outside of that, they couldn't get much of anything done, um, which is incredible. Uh, you know, Tulane had t- – let's see here. They had nine plays of chunk plays. They call them chunk plays because they're like 10 yards or more. They had nine such plays, right? The other 55 plays they ran averaged only 1.3 yards. That's the story of the game right there. Auburn, of course, was 2 of 15 on third downs uh, with their defense against Tulane's offense. But the story of the game to me was just Auburn limiting every possession it just seemed like Tulane was stuck in mud. They might hit a pass, get a first down, but after that, Auburn would get forced them to punt, averaging 1.3 yards per play outside of those nine chunk plays. Of course, you don't want all the big chunk plays, and Tulane could have had more. They had three or four, I think, was what one coach was telling us, uh, three or four plays that could have you know, gone for a bigger gain, if not touchdowns, in that game, but receivers dropped them or whatever, but... Credit to Tulane quarterback Justin McMillan. He He's shifty. He can run. He was getting out of the pocket, able to throw some balls down the field, but they didn't complete any of them. So Auburn, one, had some good coverage, but two, uh, you know, there was at least uh, two drop passes, including one in the end zone by Tulane that would have been a touchdown. So some things to clean up on defense, you know, also. Um, but the, the big issues, obviously, with the offense, and, and it will continue to be because – I, I took a lot of crud from fans for saying uh, early in the second half against Oregon that Auburn's offensive line looks a lot like last year's offensive line. They're not getting much movement. Um, and then, of course, right after that happened, they were getting movement and Jartavius Whitlow was running all over Oregon. But th- this is an issue that's continued from last season to this season. They're very inconsistent, and then they have to change things up. And credit to the coaches, Gus Malzahn specifically, for making these adjustments here there at halftime and getting things going in the running game. The question is, can they do this in-game if they're slow again? Um, you know, Because if they go to Texas A&M and they're slow running the ball, or is there any type of adjustments that's really going to be able to fix that? I, I, I don't quite know, and it's something that they're going to have to find out by themselves. Uh, when they get to that game. So those are my thoughts on the two-lane game. They're going into a game against Kent State where they're favored by 34. Auburn should easily win this game. And everybody was, you know, had it circled on the calendar as the Woody Barrett Bowl. Of course, Woody Barrett, the former Auburn quarterback who transferred to Kent State. But he was benched last week against Kennesaw State. They brought in a new quarterback, and uh, they end up beating Kennesaw State in overtime. Uh, Kennesaw State's an FCS program. They're ranked number nine in the country at the time. So uh, there's a question of whether we're even going to see Woody Barrett on the field 
After which, by the way, uh, the coaches at, at Kent State and, and, and Woody Barrett himself are saying, hey, this guy's like the face of the program. He's the quarterback for us. He's, you know, he's going to lead us to the promised land. And now he's on the bench entering the Auburn game. So we might not even see him on the field against the Tigers unless, of course, it's a big blowout and they want to get him out on the field. But uh, kind of crazy. Um, so anyway, we're going to take a commercial break here. And then when we come back, I'm going to answer all of your questions, as many as I can. Uh, consider it a small Ask Me Anything, Ask Marcelo Anything, as we do at AuburnUndercover.com every week. Uh, segment. A lot of good questions came in, so I want to get to those after these messages. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, welcome back. Now, we're on this Ask Me Anything segment here, we're going to start with questions from the message boards, and then we'll move on down the line to questions from Twitter. So I wanted to give our subscribers at AuburnUndercover.com the first chance to ask some questions and get them Get them answered. I'll answer them best I can. Obviously, I'm not a coach that's going to be able to, um, you know, give you the final answer, so to speak, on things. But I'm going to try my best. So, all right, here we go. We're going to start off with our message board questions on the body. Get a message board. First up is Mike Tiger 2018. He asks, hey, Brandon. Please talk about your thoughts on why the staff is very gun-shy with putting Harold Joyner and Matthew Hill on the field more, and please discuss Roger McCreary potentially becoming the starter over Javaris Davis, which I feel would be an upgrade and keep J.D. at nickel behind Tut. Thanks in advance. Um, okay, that that's a uh, two- or three-part question there. Okay, now with the Harold Joyner stuff and Matthew Hill, they want to get Joyner more involved, but it seems like there's some hesitancy on that part because I think – Harold Joyner's kind of become one-dimensional for them when they when they game plan because whenever Joyner's out there, you kind of know what's going to happen, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's like he's going to run a wheel route every time. And he runs the wheel route and gets thrown to, and that's it. I think he can do more things. I think he could carry the ball for them. Will the coaches give him that opportunity? I don't know. Um, as far as Matthew Hill, I agree. I th- and I think you're going to see more of him on the field starting this week against Kent State because, one – um, you know, they're dealing with injuries, particularly with Seth Williams. Now, they don't play the same position, but he can come in and play a little bit more, I think, and they need him to. He could be a big play guy. I know everybody talks about his A-day, um, you know, experience um, when he had all those great catches uh, back in the spring, but he's someone who needs to step up. And they need receivers that aren't necessarily backups to Seth Williams to step up. In fact, Sunday night, one reporter straight up asked, like, what's going on with Zach Farrar? Remember him, the graduate transfer? Wasn't he supposed to be, like, an instant impact guy? And we haven't seen him. They said it's a week-by-week thing, and he's got to improve. So we'll see. Now you're talking about Roger McCreary. He did a fantastic job at cornerback for Auburn against Tulane. Does it mean he's going to start over Javaris Davis? I don't know. I don't know. I haven't heard that. But McCreary played fantastic. 
and that is good for Auburn's future and good down the line. I think Auburn's got some really good depth in the secondary right now, something they didn't quite expect maybe going into the season. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. All right, next question from the message board comes from CK2007. Do I see any potential changes being made on the offensive line? I don't think any changes along the offensive line will happen until after their first SEC game. I think they're going to continue trying to gel this offensive line together, go in SEC play and see what happens. And if it's a catastrophe, so to speak, maybe that's when you start figuring things out and say, hey, maybe we bring Bailey Sharp in. Maybe we move Caleb Kim to guard. Maybe we put Nick Brahms in at center. Um, they've got options. Or you bring Brodarius Ham in as a guard or tackle. Um, but I don't think that's something that they'll really discuss as a coaching staff and, and meeting rooms with players until after that Texas A&M game. That's my gut feeling on that. Now, there was a point after halftime where I saw Nick Brahms that seemed like he was warming up, uh, snapping the ball on the sideline. I thought, oh, is Nick Brahms coming in to replace Caleb Kim? But that didn't happen. But um, I definitely think there could be changes. I just don't believe that there will be forced to make those changes till A&M because you have to give offensive lines a chance to gel, even the ones with seniors on them. And I would say that after the Texas A&M game, if things aren't going very well, that's when you could potentially see changes. At least that's my experience in being around this staff in the past. So we'll see. Uh, continuing with questions on the message board, Wardan Eagle asks, do you think there is more playbook that is actually being hidden for SEC play? Or if it exists, is it just not being used because we don't have confidence in the personnel right now to run it? What is the real reason we are predictable slash vanilla so far? I don't agree with the predictable vanilla stuff. And I know you guys, a lot of fans say this every year, but I, I don't know if we're watching the same game or maybe I'm just, maybe I'm the in the wrong here. But when I watched Auburn, I thought there was some more complex plays being ran against Tulane than even against Oregon at times. Um and th this idea that they're hiding part of the playbook for SEC play, I don't believe that. Now, they're building out on the playbook, and they're building on Bo Nix's success and his confidence in certain plays to where they can run different things with him. Um, doesn't mean they're hiding the playbook. That's like one of the most popular things for fans to say. And I'm not attacking you or anything, but... Every beat I've ever been on, whether it was Arkansas, Mississippi State, or now Auburn, it's always like, oh, we're just hiding our playbook until we play Texas or until we play LSU. And that's never the case. Now, teams add stuff, and that's not necessarily stuff they add to the playbook, but they add stuff to the game plan that comes from the playbook. There are plays that they have run in practices in preseason camp that they have not run in a game yet. I guarantee you that doesn't mean they're hiding it. It's just that they don't have confidence in running those certain type of plays yet. Or they don't feel like they would work. But things change when you start realizing the strengths and weaknesses of your team. And Auburn's getting a better idea after two weeks of what those strengths and weaknesses are. As far as being predictable, I don't think Auburn's been predictable. And, and the fact of the matter is Gus Malzahn's offense has always been a run-play-action offense in which they've got to run very successfully on first down to be successful on offense. He's been throwing on first down. So don't act like they're just running on first down. No, that's been a big complaint too by some people. But I thought I thought really – I thought the it was a pretty creative game plan against Tulane. 
it didn't quite work at times, and they made adjustments at halftime, and it worked. I think Gus Malzahn's limited a bit by his personnel that he's that he's got out there, particularly with the offensive line, which we've been talking about this entire podcast. And that's why, quote-unquote, it looks vanilla, because it just isn't working sometimes. Okay, now we go to Twitter here. Gavin Bridges asks, what's the possibility we see Bo Nix and Joey Gatewood on the field at the same time for some razzle-dazzle? I mean, it's it's possible. I don't know exactly what type of play you would think it would be. I think it would be a um, wildcat-type situation where you'd probably see Bo Nix at receiver and Joey Gatewood at quarterback. We've seen it before. If you remember back in um, – what year was that, guys? 2014? When Auburn played Kansas State on the road. Was that 14? Anyway, whatever year that was on a Thursday night game, they brought in um, uh, Jeremy Johnson. He, he was at receiver, I believe, and I think Nick Marshall was at quarterback. They did some different things there. Um, so that's possible you see something like that. I, I don't think it would be something where Bo Nix is throwing to Joey Gatewood or anything like that, though. Uh, Justin Clayton asked, did Auburn attempt to go after any offensive lineman in the transfer portal? Seems like the offensive line has been a problem for over two years. You would think we would have went for immediate help. Well, there wasn't anything that really fit Auburn's um, plans and its personnel this year. So that's why they didn't pick up any offensive linemen really in the transfer portal. Now, they have in the past. Um, in fact, they have, I think, each of the last two or three off seasons, except for this past one. Jack Driscoll, of course, the starting right tackle, was a transfer portal guy. Um, that came from UMass, and now he's a starter for Auburn. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name because he didn't pan out, but there was a transfer from Florida State. I can't remember his name now, but he didn't pan out at Auburn, and he came to Auburn. The issue with the offensive line has been recruiting over these last three or four years. Auburn didn't get the type of numbers they wanted. Some of the guys that they really were high on didn't pan out, whether it was Bailey Sharp for example, who's now still a backup going into his senior year. And sometimes Auburn just didn't get the guys they wanted. And as I said, they undersigned some players. And Auburn's really paying for it in recruiting. And, and that's why, you know, they've they've what? They've committed, got six commitments right now for this upcoming recruiting class with offensive linemen, and they're probably going to get maybe seven. It's because there's been recruiting issues. And, um, you know, next year is going to be a gamble because it's going to be an entire new offensive line and you know the backups aren't getting a, really a lot of experience right now um okay brian haydad my good friend in starkville mississippi will you go see joker yes i will go see, i'm gonna go see it brian yeah definitely it looks good i mean it's been getting great reviews at all these film festivals Obviously, it's a little bit different from, you know, an actual comic book movie. I'm interested to see it, uh, see the take on it. Joaquin Phoenix is an incredible actor, uh, but obviously it's a uh, kind of an Elseworlds story arc. It's not one that's going to be in the universe, I wouldn't think, of the DC comic universe, movie universe, if that even exists anymore. Okay, Keith Dale Splon asks... Gus Malzahn talked on the review show about switching to more gap blocking versus zone in the second half versus Tulane. Have you heard that from the staff before? Um, well, I mean, for example, we are talking about the three buck sweeps they ran. They were pulling the guards a little bit. They did switch things up, particularly with blocking, because uh, Tulane was just smashing them in the mouth 
with the zone blocking and it was just a mess. Um, it looked, it kind of looked like, uh, a bunch of Legos like being smashed together and falling apart when you step on them. I don't know why I'm saying that. Does that make sense? Probably doesn't. Anyway, we move on. Carson, <laughs> Carson Haygood. Is that how you say his name, your name, Carson? Carson Haygood? Haygood? Anyway. Ooh, this is long. The key to Gus's successful offenses has been the running game. We don't have a carry on Johnson. Production needs to come from the quarterback as well. Do you foresee more read option coming from Bo Nix or they incorporate more Joey Gatewood? Need something to be successful. Um, it's interesting you bring that up because I brought it up to Gus Malzahn after the press conference Sunday night and I said, are, you're not afraid, are you afraid of running Bo Nix like 12 times in a game if you have to? And he said, no. In fact, that they need to do more run game with the quarterback, with Bo Nix specific, specifically. Excuse me, That's a good sign to me because I think Bo Nix is a really, really good runner. We've seen it. And um, my colleague here um, who works for The Athletic, um, uh, Justin Ferguson, he does a film room study. And he said that every zone read play in which Bo Nix has kept the ball in these first two games, he hasn't been touched. He hasn't been tackled. He's just run out of bounds because he's picking up good yardage. That's interesting to me. Um, of course, he picked up three yards on that scramble on fourth and three against Oregon. It wasn't a zone read, I don't believe. But, yeah, I think they run, should run some zone read stuff with them, and it certainly sounds like Gus Malzahn might be leaning that way moving forward. As far as Joey Gatewood, listen, his He's going to have a package going into every game. What it's going to be, I think coaches are really keeping close to the vest. But I will say this. There was a play against Tulane on, I think, third and two, maybe in the first half, where they brought Gatewood in, and then there was a timeout, and they pulled him back out. So, obviously, they're not just using him as a red zone guy, as they did against Oregon or a goal line guy. So we'll see what his role is moving forward. I think it's going to change every week. And I know that sounds like a cliche or not cliche, but – a repetitive stance that Gus Malzahn takes, but it, it's truly true. It, his role is going to change every week based off the opponent and what they think they can do with Joey Gatewood. Okay, some good questions, guys. This is really good. Barning Knight, I like that. Barning Knight asks, why aren't we using our running back committee and will anything be done to fix our interior blocking? Okay, we've talked about the offensive line a lot, so we won't hit on that. But the running back committee stuff, Interesting. Um, Auburn's a little limited right now, even though they've got a lot of running backs. I know that sounds strange. Booby Whitlow's been the, the bell cow. I think he got tired late in that game uh, against Tulane. Thought he got tired against Oregon, too. Um, they've got to get a second option. They feel they Gus really likes Cam Martin. He falls forward every time he, ca- he carries the ball. But it's strange because he says that, you know, he got 10, you know, obviously he got 10 carries against Tulane, but five of them came on the last drive and they're burning clock. So it wasn't like they were using like a committee approach with him against Tulane. And he didn't really pick up a lot of yardage. I think the answer is DJ Williams, the true freshman running back. I think it's got to be a two man attack with Whitlow and Booby Whitlow, or excuse me, Booby Whitlow and DJ Williams. The problem is, is that DJ Williams suffered an injury last week, last Tuesday, and I've got some information on that at auburnundercover.com for our subscribers. And so it's just a matter of when can he get back up to speed? Because if he was healthy uh, last week going into the two-lane game, he probably would have gotten some carries. Um, but he's been playing really well on special teams, and they want to get him involved. I think he could be the answer for them. 
And I think some of the coaches think that too. Okay. Uh, Matt, Matt Reiner, Matt Rayner uh, asks, if Waffle House is open 24-7, why are there locks on the door? Good question. Well, sometimes you do have to lock up uh, the Waffle House. Sometimes you have national emergencies, <laughs> state of emergencies. Um, I'm trying to remember, actually. I remember when uh, the Montgomery mayor, I believe, put a curfew down when there was like a snowstorm moving through and it ended up not being anything here but up on um on the interstate between Montgomery and Birmingham it was just ice and it was terrible so they 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 shut it down and my f- good friend James Crepia um who was working for the Montgomery advertiser at the time and living in Montgomery he wasn't supposed to be on the road but he got on the road anyway <laughs> ignored curfew and uh went to a waffle house which was still open which I mean, come on, if a Waffle House is still open despite the curfew, will they ever close their doors? But yes, they close their doors sometimes. They have to. Sometimes they close their doors to have cleaning. Um, you know, like a like a Denny's. You ever heard of a Denny's restaurant? I remember when I was in college, that was like the place we always would go to. At my place of work, we would go there late at night to eat or whatever. And there were some times that the place was closed, so they had to lock the doors. And the reason why it was closed is because they'd have like a carpet cleaner or some industrial cleaner in there cleaning the restaurant up. So that's why you've got locks in the doors. I know that was like a serious question to a funny, serious answer to a funny question, but whatever. (laughs) Kevin Camp asks, why have some fans gone so dark on the team in record time? Thanks. <laughs> I, I'm with you, Kevin. The fans have really gone like, oh, my gosh, we're just never going to do anything. And I think it's because everybody sees what's on the horizon. It's just, I mean, listen, Auburn has to play three of the top four teams in the AP poll still with one of those on the road at LSU and Alabama and Georgia, of course, at home. Your SEC opener is at Texas A&M, a team I think that's number 16 in the nation right now. You have to play Florida, which is number nine in the nation, and you have to play them on the road in October. It's difficult. It's tough. Everybody sees the schedule, and listen, like the margin between being a good team and a great team in the SEC, it's slim, but it's also great in in, in the sense that you beat two of those teams, two of those five teams, you're somewhere in the mix there maybe. But then if you lose to four of them, the season's seen as a failure. And it just so happens Auburn has to play all the best teams in the SEC every year. Um, so I think that's why people see it as dark. Because they see it and they see the prognostications they see the espn fpi which predicts games i mean the fpi is projecting auburn to lose five games and they're against those ranked opponents by the way because one florida and a&m are on the road and then the two home games against alabama and georgia they're so highly ranked they're going to be favored anyway but i think what auburn's just kind of hoping for is that they they can go into lsu at five and one if they can do that that's a good sign in my opinion. It might not sound like it to you, but that'd be a great sign for them. Um, if they can beat Texas A&M in the opener, SEC opener, which I think is what the coaches have, have have had, you know, circled on their calendar since they beat Oregon, that would be huge. But I think that's why fans are just being so dark about it because, listen, 
Auburn obviously has some issues. But listen, every every team has issues, even the great ones. But when you see glaring ones like what Auburn's having right now with the running and the run blocking, it, and obviously you're starting a true freshman quarterback, it, it gives you a pause for concern. Plus you're dealing with injuries, particularly with Seth Williams at receiver, and it gives, it gives you a little pause to go, how do you get to knock off a top four team? And I, I think that's why fans are, quote-unquote, dark on the whole situation. All right, final question comes from Auburn Tweep. <laughs> In sports writer terms, where does the Auburn beat rank compared to other SEC jobs? I imagine schools larger significant significant cities like Athens, Gainesville, etc. have to be more attractive to those in your profession. But then again, all the big seven SEC schools have to be pretty good jobs. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to say, Auburn Tweep. I mean, different different uh, strokes for different folks, I guess, for journalists. Um I think covering Auburn's one of the top top beats in the country and also the SEC. One because as a journalist, it's never quiet. Something's always going on, whether it's positive or negative. So that's always attractive to a journalist because you always have stories to tell and it keeps you on your toes. Um, personally, I don't think I could. I'd want to live in Gainesville. I you know I don't know if I'd want to live in Tuscaloosa and Alabama. I've been there a lot and Tuscaloosa. Tuscaloosa doesn't strike me as a, a great college town. I like being in college towns. That's what I grew up around. That's what I grew up around in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I mean, I'd love to live in Fayetteville again. It's a great city. It's a great town. It's what I grew up at. Does that mean Arkansas's a top SEC beat? No, by far, no. It's not. But I like the city. So anyway, like any job, people consider you know where you're moving, where you're going. But when you're younger and you're trying to get a beat job, you're not really thinking about where you're living. You're thinking about getting your foot in the door and going to a bigger beat. Like for me, I went to I went to Starkville, Mississippi and worked there for three years, for three seasons, football seasons. It's not the best SEC town. You guys know that. But it was okay. I did my work. I lived alone. Um, I just worked, 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 and worked. That's all I did to keep myself occupied. Then I moved to Auburn, and I, lo- I love it here. I absolutely love it here. Um, I've always, I've visited several times, obviously covering games for on other beats, and always thought it was a beautiful town. I, I always loved Tumors Corner when the old Oaks were there, the original Oaks. It was just so, it was enthralling to me. Um, and so when I moved here, like the first night I was actually here, here, I remember my wife and I went out and had drinks, I think, with some of the beat writers that were here at the time. And, man, I think all of them are gone now. Um, and we sat at the bank vault, uh, bar, which is, which is across the street, was across the street from tumors corner, um, from the trees and the trees were, you know, dead at that point and dying. And they're about to be cut down, um, a month later in April, 2013, but it was just beautiful with the, the, the lighting and it was dark and you could see the silhouettes of the big tree trunks and the tree limbs, it was beautiful, and to sit out there in cool temperatures and drink a beer was fantastic, even after lifting and moving stuff all day, <laughs> moving into my place. But um, anyway, Auburn's definitely a top job in the SEC and definitely in the country because, as I said, there's always something going on. Auburn's always contending or wanting to contend in some sport somehow, some way. And, I mean, listen, I've covered a national championship game in football 
and I've covered a Final Four in basketball. How many schools can say that? How many beat writers can say that? So this is by far the best beat I've ever been on and will ever be on. Um, I don't know if I'd want to go anywhere else, to be quite honest. And I know people are wondering, you know, they, they ask like, well, do you love Auburn all this? And, do you, you know, you know, I like I like seeing Auburn win. Doesn't make me make me a fan. It just makes my job easier. And there's better stories to tell when a team's winning. You know, that's what we all want to cover is a winning team. No one wants to cover coaches getting fired again and again and again and again. You know, I I would absolutely just dread covering Tennessee right now. For example, they have just been in 15 years of constant flux and turnover. And to cover that and the, some of the scandals and all the infighting and all that stuff, that's da- that's not dangerous, but it's just toxic and it's a weird environment to work in. And I don't know if I'd want that. Now, having said that, this this is what there's my cautionary tale or message to the fans. I know a lot of you are like soured on Gus Malzahn, all this stuff, but I'm telling you, if you make a wrong decision and firing someone, and then you make a wrong decision in hiring someone, particularly say you're going into a 2020 year where Auburn's replacing its entire defensive line practically and its entire offensive line, then you make the wrong hire, that can set in motion kind of what Tennessee's been through since the Philip Fulmer era, and you don't want that. And I say that because of this. Auburn could be a Tennessee. Tennessee could also be an Auburn, if you know what I mean. Either of those programs could contend for championships, but all it takes is one bad decision and then another bad decision and then another bad decision, and all of a sudden you are not just going downhill. You're at the valley trying to find a way to climb back up where you're hoping and praying for eight-win seasons or a seven-win season in a bowl game. Do you guys remember what 2012 was like? Do you want that again? I'm not saying, hey, if you get get rid of Gus Bounds, that's what's going to happen. But all it takes is one bad decision, bad timing, and all that. So, anyway, I love it here at Auburn. I love covering Auburn because, as I said, there's always something going on. And for the most part, since I've been here, Auburn's been winning games. They haven't had a losing season since I've been here. They've been to a bowl game every year. They've played in three New Year's six bowls, so to speak, and a B or two of those, and then a new and then a BCS national championship. They've won two SEC West titles. They've played in two SEC championship games. And the common thread with all that's been Gus Malzahn. So say what you will about him the last two years or the year plus since they went to the I mean they went to the SEC championship in 2017. But say what you will. And obviously the, the landscapes change with Alabama and Georgia. But, I mean, just be careful what you wish for. I think, I think cooler heads have to sit here and really examine the landscape and what's happening because um, a lot of factors go into it. One, consistency. Two, recruiting, which has been on the upswing, actually, for Auburn right now, despite all this, and the future. If you make a bad decision, things could go south. So, anyway derailing my own answer to a question about top SEC beats. I think Auburn's definitely up there. It's as far as something that's desirable to to writers, I would say it's a top 3 beat in the SEC. 
Um, Alabama, obviously, is one of them. Auburn. And then I would argue probably Florida or LSU. But maybe Florida over that. But when it comes to actually, one, having a beat like that and also living in a college town, it's kind of hard to beat Auburn. It's an actual college town. And it's a program that wins. Sometimes in spite of itself and sometimes in spite of all the odds that's stacked up against them um, from outside influence. That's what makes covering this program pretty great and fun, guys. That's why I love being here. And that's why I love having you guys listen. I thank you so much for uh, listening to this edition of the Auburn Undercover Podcast. Much more coverage at auburn.247sports.com. We'll be back later in the week with a roundtable podcast, talk about Kent State and obviously the future for Auburn football moving forward in the weeks ahead. Until then, I'll see you down the road. No one has it covered like 24-7 sports. Go Undercover with Auburn Undercover. Undercover.